So this evening I'd like to reflect on the parami of renunciation. It's this parami is, of course, like all of the other paramis, deeply interwoven with the parami of wisdom or insight. In truth, each of the qualities that we've been speaking about over these evenings are insight or wisdom practices. I'd like to start with a poem, another poem by Naomi Shihabnai. Um, and please forgive my accent. It's entitled Adios. It's a good word rolling off the tongue, no matter what language you were born with. Use it, learn where it begins, the small alphabet of departure. How long it takes to think of it, then say it, then be heard. Marry it more than any golden ring, it shines, it shines, wear it on every finger, till your hands dance, touching everything easily, letting everything easily go. Strap it to your back like wings, or a kite tail, the stream of air behind a jet. If you are known for anything, let it be the way you rise out of sight when your work is finished. Think of things that linger, leaves, cartons and napkins, the damp smell of mold. Think of things that disappear. Think of what you love best, what brings tears into your eyes, something that said adios to you before you knew what it meant or how long it was for. Explain little. The word explains itself. Later, perhaps, lessons following lessons, like silence following sound. So, renunciation. I have a friend, a dear friend, and every time she flies somewhere, she worries She quite rationally thinks that flying is a rather unnatural process, that planes really shouldn't be able to stay aloft. So she worries. She knows it's very painful to worry. And she tells herself she really should let go. But then she tells herself, after all, someone needs to worry. Because that's what keeps the plane aloft. (laughs) And what would happen if nobody worried? She says it's almost a sense the way her worry is keeping things safe. I think this, this is our human dilemma. We actually all experientially know the painfulness of clinging that there's very little happiness in grasping. There's very little good outcome in grasping. We know that the outcome is always the same, delivering, that clinging is always delivering this this outcome, this quality of contractedness, of anxiety. And actually, we've probably had a sense of the way in which clinging and grasping actually blights our lives, in a sense truly, I think, leeching joy from our lives. And I suspect everyone's had the experience many, many times of telling yourself to let go, even scolding yourself. And have you noticed how deeply ineffective that is? We may actually hold ourselves an underlying belief system that tells us that it is our clinging that keeps people close to us, that our clinging, our grasping in some way protects us from loss, from our world crumbling. 
We may believe that it protects or defends others, ourselves, in some even unseen way. We may even mistake clinging for connectedness. Sometimes we can even mistake clinging for love. And then there is a simple reality in all of our lives that we are asked to let go countless times. And sometimes that is the price we pay to live our life fully. A life in which many, many things are letting go of us. The Buddha proposed a very simple formula that clinging and grasping and holding are all experiences that are laced with suffering and that they lead to greater suffering. And that the degree of freedom and happiness and peace that any of us will know in our life and in ourselves is equal to the degree that we find in ourselves the capacity for unbinding and the capacity for letting go, the capacity for relinquishing. In the Buddhist teaching, it is taught in a completely uncompromising way that renunciation is central to a path of happiness and freedom, that renunciation is a profound gesture of compassion for ourselves, and that renunciation is a profound gesture of compassion for the world, for our planet, for all of those that we care for. And we don't even like the word. Sometimes it feels a hard word to like. We'd like softer words. Ones that don't feel quite so uncompromising. The Buddha put it that there are, you know, we've talked a lot about intentionality in this retreat. And it's sometimes said that the whole of this path rests upon the head of the pin of intention. And, And yet the Buddha was very, very clear about what intentions are actually helpful to us and what intentions actually lead to liberation. And this is a very short list. So it's a very easy one to remember. Three. Renunciation, kindness, compassion. That if these three pervade all of our actions, if they are the forerunner to all of our speech, all of our actions, all of our choices, we are, have our feet firmly planted on a path of awakening. These three intentions, as we've looked at them here, they are not without their own foundation because they rest upon a foundation of integrity, of relatedness. And as we practice here and as as we come perhaps to embrace this teaching and perhaps even a little bit come to embrace the possibility of profound inner freedom, then... Part of that is actually learning to recognize that each one of us here is part of a renunciate tradition. Part walking a pathway of renunciation, learning moment to moment what it is to unbind our own hearts, what it is to untangle our hearts from confusion and fear and ill will. Now, the path and the practice and the understanding of renunciation, I think, is a path that leads very, very directly to deeply understanding, again, a short list, the three universal laws, the three universal characteristics of all that is born. Yes, there is unsatisfactoriness in this life, and it asks to be understood There is an unarguable rhythm of change and instability from which none of us are exempt. 
And there is the whole question of self and non-self that we are invited to explore and to understand for ourselves. It, as I mentioned, renunciation is not an easy word for us. It's a difficult word to embrace. It's a difficult quality to embody. It's a difficult path to walk. I think for some, the word renunciation holds these kind of echoes of coldness or, or disconnection when we all know how much our hearts yearn for greater connectedness and intimacy with all things. So many of us as women in our lives are really asked to care for so many. And the word renunciation can almost seem somewhat counterintuitive to that care. We are all relational beings. We interact with those we love and those we struggle with. We interact with one another moment to moment. And at first glance, or sometimes when we first hear the word, renunciation seems to imply something other, something about not caring or getting rid of. And experientially, here is the bottom line, we all know how exceedingly difficult it does seem to really let go of anything at all. And how embedded the emotional habit pattern of clinging and grasping feels to be in our life. Just look back at today. Look back at the last hour. And just see if you can trace the movement of clinging, the movement of grasping. When we really look at it, that habit pattern, it almost seems impossible almost to imagine it not arising. We find that there is clinging to sights, to sounds, to dinner, to the last meditation, to thoughts of future happiness. We find ourselves clinging to people we love and we do indeed cling to people we struggle with. There can be grasping around thoughts, memories, hopes, roles, my space, my opinions. Isn't it hard to imagine what a life without clinging would actually look like? We would wonder how we would even get out of bed in the morning. (laughs) We could imagine a life without direction. You know, without meaning, without identity, without purpose. I think it really is so important as we reflect upon renunciation to be absolutely crystal clear about what is being let go of. What is being renounced? Not the people we love, not life. We're not being asked to let go of the full and vibrant world of the senses. We're certainly not being asked to let go of our aspirations, our capacity to care. What is it that we're really learning to let go of? Is suffering and struggle and their causes. That is it. That is it. We're learning to let go of suffering and struggle and their causes. We're learning to let go of the sorrow of the contracted and fearful heart. We're learning the pathway of letting go and unbinding from some of the afflictive emotions of fear and ill will and confusion so that all that is lovely, all that is joyful, all that is loving and kind and compassionate, can truly flourish and deepen within us. We learn in this journey of renunciation actually to love the freedom of the heart that is unbound. In my own experience, my own understanding, there there is no renunciation without insight. 
that without insight, without understanding, all that we have around letting go is a kind of command structure, a control structure, a sneaky kind of aversion that says, you know, I should let go of this. I need to get rid of this. I need to get out of this. But when there is that kind of, kind of command, control, aversive structure, we're actually really, of course, not letting go of anything at all. We're just rejecting, we're just resisting, we're just pushing away or avoiding, which are all actually the near enemies of renunciation. We could call all of that the shadow side of renunciation. We're walking away from what we can't be with. We turn our backs on what we feel we can't bear or embrace. In, in understanding, I think, renunciation deeply, what we're asked to understand, to put it quite simply, is the way things actually are. Sounds fairly simple. <laughs> that's, that's what we're asked to understand. We are asked to align our hearts and our minds and our lives with the core actualities, what I would call the core unarguables of every human life. We get right back to the three characteristics. The unarguables. Think about the unarguables. There is unsatisfactoriness in this life from the pain that can come just with being born, living within a body, the unsatisfactoriness, the pain within loss. There is the reality of the unarguable reality that nothing stands still, that nothing is actually graspable. And actually, it's really pretty difficult, I would say exceedingly difficult, but I encourage you to try, to find an endurable, enduring and reliable me. <laughs> now, much of the struggle and turmoil that we can and do experience in this life is actually not intrinsic to these realities. These realities of pain, of change, of conditions can be very sad can be very sad. But this is not the struggle. The struggle is, of course, in our reaction to them, the way that we argue with the unarguables. If you basically look at any moment of conflict in our life, struggle, we're doing this business of arguing with the unarguables. And the phenomenal thing is that we never win that argument. We can never win that argument. There can be a good deal of dissonance um, between the simple truths of this moment and the way that we want them to be, or even our insistence of how things should be. I think it is a wonderful investigation, this, this experience of dissonance. This is how something is. This is how I insist it be. This is how a person is in this moment. This is how I think they should be. This is how I am in this moment. Everything that is being felt and experienced. And here is my world of demand of how I should be. Renunciation is actually primarily concerned with healing this dissonance and learning to put down the argument with the unarguables. And in doing so, in healing those moments of dissonance that can arise countless times in a single day, in that healing of that dissonance, learning to bring an end to so much of the torment. There is much that is delightful in this life. 
as we live through our own Disney movie here. <laughs> we see that there is much that is delightful. You know, the little turkey chicks following after Mama Turkey, you know, the little bouncing deer, you know, the wonderful birds, you know, the sights. I mean, there is so much that is lovely here. I mean, it's hard to find anything. It's not lovely, isn't it? And that's wonderful. And we have people in our lives we care about. And we have people in our lives who care about us. We have lovely moments at times. We even on occasion have a lovely sit. (laughs) But there's also a good deal, isn't there, that's just quite not so pleasant. That is painful uncomfortable, sad. We don't get what we want. Strawberries don't reappear. (laughs) There's always the sitting that failed to meet our expectations. There's the difficult people in our lives, and then, boy, we come to the body. a lot that's really not so pleasant there. Even when things are looking good, imagine what it'd be like if you wore your insides on the outside. Wouldn't look so great. There is the pain of loss, isn't there? The pain of separation. All that we will all be asked to embrace in this life. Embrace in this life. And in these, these, personal, these realities are felt differently, of course, for each of us. And, and the way that we experience pain really needs to be respected and to be honored. There's a very personal reality and there is a universal reality. You look around you in this room at all of the women in this room and is there anyone here who has or... Who, or who, who won't be asked to embrace their own landscape of pain. And as you've listened to each other over these days, you know how true that is. The moments of pain, the moments of sorrow, the moments of loss, the moments of heartache that have been raised in our group meetings. And we know there is a universality to all of this. In my own life, and this is something I've really been reflecting on so much of late, in my own life I've really come to see that my relationship, both to pleasure and to pain, really comes to define me as a human being. Governs how I live my life. That my relationship to pain and pleasure governs how I live my life and how I engage with the world. I see that if I fear pain, if I only know how to react to pain or sorrow with aversion, my heart will surely become agitated and contracted. I will have a waterfall of fearful thinking and I will endlessly engage in acts and choices to avoid pain. This is actually called grasping and clinging. I can know very deeply an appreciation of pleasure and the way in which the pleasant can truly gladden the heart and brighten the mind. But I can also take that next step in relationship to pleasure down the endless journey of clinging, the way in which my wants turn to needs the way in which my needs can turn to dependency and the way in which my dependency can solidify a belief in insufficiency. And here too, I will have a waterfall of thinking. I will become agitated in relationship to the pleasant. How do I keep this? How can I have more of it? How can I maintain this? How can I make this mine? The feeling that my life will crumble if I don't succeed 
in maintaining and holding the pleasant experience or the pleasant sensation or the pleasant events. And here too, I will make choices and I will act in ways and engage with the world in ways in which my life will become dedicated to the pursuit of the pleasant and the avoidance of the painful. And I will, even in the midst of the pleasant, experience the painfulness of clinging and grasping. I really think that to understand wisdom, to understand freedom, to really understand renunciation, equanimity, we are asked to explore and to be willing to meet the foundations of clinging, our own very real, very personal relationship to pain and pleasure to the unpleasant and the lovely. And I think this is a really genuine reflection and investigation. It's almost like the homework of our day and the homework of our lives. How does our relationship to the pleasant and the unpleasant define who we believe ourselves to be as a woman, as a human being? Clinging and grasping, we are asked to understand, is actually only an intensification. It's only a continuum of craving and aversion. It is not something separate. It is only an intensification of craving and aversion. So many examples of this. We have the candles in the meditation room. They're quite lovely. Why don't we have them all day? I think I'll write a note to Quilly and ask her. Maybe we could have a new policy here. Oh, they blew the candles out. That shouldn't happen. We can see that continuum, can't we? Just from pleasant to craving to insistence. To feeling, I can't even be, I'm not even going to sit in here if the candles aren't lit. (laughs) I mean, it's a frivolous example. But I think of how many times it arises. I come here at Spirit Rock. You know, there's a room I like. I really do like that room. You know the rest of this story. I really, how am I going to get the room I want? I did request it. Oh, no. You know, people always ignore my needs. So it's oscillating in this intensification of craving and aversion and building a self that defines who we are as a human being in this moment. In my own experience, we are not short of opportunities to explore the reactions of craving and aversion. It's not demanding that they don't arise, but they do really ask to be understood, to be explored, to sense what they feel like, and really ask that question. Is there any peace? Is there any happiness when our hearts are held in the grip of craving and aversion? Is there any sense of balance, of spaciousness, of kindness? Is there compassion? Is there confidence? Is there a sense of freedom when our hearts are held in the grip of craving and aversion? I think we could take these questions into all these moments when actually craving and aversion do arise. And they may be questions that somehow begin to calm that momentum that process of craving aversion intensifying into clinging and grasping. Some of these questions may be the key to renunciation, to unbinding the heart. Mary Oliver, in one of her poems, part of one of her poems, she says, every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to to this. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. (coughs) To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. (laughs) 
Renunciation is not something we do. It's an embodiment of an understanding. And the understanding of renunciation is deeply, deeply tied into understanding, genuinely understanding impermanence. The inarguable nature of change, that there is nothing in this life that is graspable. Now, we all know about impermanence. You know, this place is not news to anyone. And isn't it amazing how we can suffer prolonged bouts of amnesia? (laughs) Of forgetfulness? We could all have deep and philosophical discussions about the reality of change. It's not so easy for us to live in the light of impermanence, nor to embrace the implications of impermanence. And that's, I think, the piece which is most important. Of course, there are times when we're really happy about impermanence. You know, the bell at the end of the difficult sitting, the end of the root canal, (laughs) times the healing of a broken leg, your difficult neighbor moves house, the end of an obsession. Grasping mostly arises as a reaction to the changes that we can't or find ourselves unwilling to embrace. It's almost as if clinging is the mechanism we use to pretend that impermanence and change of that which we cherish will somehow prevent that, protect us from loss. Now, we do acknowledge that change and loss indeed can be deeply painful To be separated from those we love is heartache, but it's true. And it's part of the fabric of all of our lives. Clinging is noticeably lacking in resonance, not only with the way things actually are, but clinging is also lacking in resonance with compassion and kindness for ourselves and all around us. Sometimes we tell ourselves, in the face of changes that are difficult to accept, somehow we tell ourselves that loss and change is a personal failure. That somehow a statement of our inability to keep things fixed in place. Our fault. One of the big areas of clinging is around perception our perception of others, our perceptions of ourselves, our perceptions of the world. Have you noticed how we can go through life so with so much clinging invested in our perceptions that our clinging has actually become normalized? It's become naturalized. That we can go through life, you know, just throwing these perceptions around, you know, that they're terrible. You know, they're, they're really grim. They're, they're unkind, you know. They're, they're cold. You know, you are like this. I am like this. You know, you, you are such a difficult person. You know, you are so selfish. I am so selfish. I can hardly think of any greater act of compassion than to for ourselves or for another, than to liberate ourselves and others from our fixed views of them. Because all that ever, ever keeps anything set in place, fixed in place, is our view and our clinging to our view. And that view and that clinging to view is actually what prevents us and prevents others from being the fluid, unfolding beings that we are and can be. When the Dalai Lama teaches about impermanence, he encourages to reflect on what has already disappeared. It might be youth, might be interest, might be energy, it might be some sense of capacity how many people that we have cared for or known have gone out of our lives. 
the 10,000 experiences and events that once featured in our lives, now gone. The tens of thousands of thoughts that we have had in this life. Where are they now? Reflect on the difficulties that you have met or experienced that are now part of your past. Think of some of the obsessions or passions or preoccupations that have felt absolutely so overwhelming at some point and you're sure they're going to be here forever. They're gone. They're gone. The last breath. The last sitting. The last walking. They've all gone. Some unhappily so, some happily so, but doesn't make any difference. Gone. Imagine what our life would be like <laughs> without impermanence. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> wouldn't that be bad news? If you had to carry with you every thought you ever thought. If you had to carry with you every obsession you ever entertained, imagine what life would be like without impermanence. We wouldn't be able to bear it. Suzuki Roshi, he once said that renunciation is not getting rid of the things of this world, but accepting that they pass away. And clinging and grasping, I think, is a rather futile endeavor to deny the reality of change, to argue with the unarguable. And it sets us at odds with the way things actually are. It is no wonder that clinging and grasping does create so much suffering and pain. What would it be like for us, truly, to live with a deep sense of accord with the reality of impermanence, that all things will pass. For me, it feels like a kind of grace. It doesn't mean that we love less or that we care less or appreciate less, but we might indeed really struggle less. In the midst of a mind storm that we are sure will last forever, a body torment where we can see no end, a heartache that feels unbearable. To know that this too is a process, unfolding, changing, life. The life we can only live fully when we know in our bones that nothing is graspable. It's a hard lesson for us to learn because we see in our day, we see in our experience how quickly we move from openness to contractedness, to clinging. It can feel so visceral. And yet our life really does keep asking us to learn the lessons of renunciation, which are really, it's not a big dramatic thing, you know. It's no more, no less than aligning our hearts with the way things are moment to moment, a thousand times in a single day, sometimes a thousand times in a single hour. Loss and endings can be deeply sad. They're not emotionally neutral. But with, even within the sadness, we can know too, this is process. This is changing. This too is moving. Born of knowing a stillness, actually, inwardly, in the midst of all this change. Born of embracing these natural laws. Renunciation, I think, is also a very deep understanding of non-self in Pali Anatta. Now, non-self, and please be aware I don't say no self. Non-self is not an ideological statement. It's an invitation to investigate. 
that how in so many ways it becomes evident that underlying many of our emotional and psychological processes, underlying many of our reactions and our fears and our striving, underlying many of the choices that we make, is a belief system of centrality. That this is me, this belongs to me, this is who I am. This is essentially, by nature, a belief system of fear and insufficiency. Thriving in a culture of lack. The culture of lack that manifests in craving, aversion, and clinging. I am my body, my past, my memories, my thoughts, my emotions, my identity, all that I have accumulated, all that I become. We don't even know we have that belief system until somebody sits in our chair. (laughs) Then you feel it. My chair? (laughs) We don't even know it until somebody disagrees with our opinions. We don't even know it until somebody takes the last strawberry. We just don't know it until life keeps bumping up against that belief system and keeps bringing it to surface. This is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. So then we hear the selfing voice. Selfing voice. Now, renunciation is not the slightest bit concerned with erasing self. It's deeply concerned with releasing views of self, deeply concerned with releasing fixed views of self. Because we could be fairly certain that if this most central domain of clinging to I and me and my is unquestioned, then grasping basically has license to continue to govern our lives. But the view of self, you've probably noticed, first of all, it's not emotionally neutral. Hmm? We don't ever have a neutral view of self. It's, sometimes it's built around aversion. You know, I don't like myself that much. You know, I don't like my body. I don't like my appearance. I don't like my emotions. And we form a view, usually through judgment. I'm hopeless. I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm not good enough. Sometimes this has been a story told to us by others. And at times we've picked it up ourselves. At times the view of self is really rooted in craving around body, emotions, thoughts, a good meditation. You know, great yogi, great athlete, run the extra mile, I'm doing great, you know. Another view formed through clinging. Sometimes it's really, really important, you know, when we talk about non-self, to look at this as a very felt experience. And, you know, rather than trying to find non-self, I think it's a much better idea to try and find a fixed self. Because it's like, it's like all of you have heard non-self a million times, you know. But I think to try and find a fixed self, that's a really interesting investigation. Just try. It's so hard. Do you remember how you viewed yourself as a teenager? Is that how you view yourself now? Do you remember this, a sad self, a broken-hearted self, where you're sure was, nothing was ever going to be any different, and how it changes? Have you noticed how the kind of anxious self at breakfast You wonder what happened when it's the excited self at lunch. You remember the agitated sense of self in a particular sitting looks very, very different than the sense of self that sits contentedly on a bench outside looking at the hills. Some of these views of self, of course, are are quite repetitive, and so they look more real. They look more real. They're usually the aversive views. They look more real. They look more familiar. It's like when they appear, we're not really surprised. But just because (laughs) it's 
they look more real simply because they've been repeated more frequently. So they're more convincing. Now, we do what we do see in self-view, of course, is exactly the same impermanence we see in everything else. We see the reality of change. We see thoughts. We see No, actually, we see process. We see the way that thoughts and feelings and bodies and memories and images and sensations arise and combine together in particular mandalas that change. And that when those, those mandalas are shaped and clung to, they become my view of self in the moment. What is actually ap- happening is we're superimposing a view upon a process. Then when we superimpose a view upon a process, we have the sensation or the belief, this is who I am. We actually create a self out of a process of selfing. And of course, the invitation of this practice is to come much more into process mode and to see like the very, that, that selfing too is not, not outside of the realm of impermanence, of change constantly shifting, constantly being shaped, constantly forming, and then reforming. Now, something very weird happens in this. Now, many of us have actually contemplated non-self a lot of times in our practice, you know, and have yet to be successful, I might say, in finding an enduring and solid reliable self. I mean, many of you have done this a lot. So isn't it interesting? We, we somehow know this, that there's no centrality of experience. There's just a view of centrality. And yet, even though we've done that, contemplated that so often, isn't it strange? This is the weird bit, by the way, really weird. We get the idea that there is an autonomous self who is going to let go. You just consider the weirdness of that? We consider that there is an autonomous self who is going to let go. Now that's what we're doing when we're shouting at ourselves all the time, isn't it? Let go, let go, let go. We're assuming I am somehow here with the capacity to let go, forgive me for saying so, but this makes no sense. That here is the one thing not subject to impermanence, the one who is responsible for letting go. <laughs> no wonder we feel so frustrated. As we shouted ourselves and shouted ourselves time and time again, let go, let go, let go. Who? Who is letting go? Okay, so this is not a very esoteric discussion, I might say. (laughs) But actually, what you see is that clinging is born of conditions. You could say that confusion and craving and aversion are the conditions of clinging. So the conditions of renunciation, mindfulness, kindness, insight, compassion. Now, this is not something alien to your experience. I just want to suggest. How many times have you had the experience when you're sitting and, you know, you feel really agitated or a bit aversive or, you know, discontented and a difficult thought arises from the past and you just feel that contractedness? You just feel the clinging happen. How many other times have you actually found in your own experience, you could be sitting, there's a lot of calmness, a lot of mindfulness, a lot of spaciousness, exactly the same thought arises, and it just passes on through. The thought hasn't changed. Nobody let go of that thought. Hmm? What has actually changed is the conditions in which that thought arises. Which is why in Buddhist teaching and Buddhist psychology, so much emphasis is given 
to being mindful moment to moment of the conditions that are being cultivated. Not shouting at ourselves to let go, not commanding, not assuming that responsibility, but knowing that what is actually in our hands is the capacity to cultivate the conditions conducive to relinquishment. Conducive to a natural renunciation. Not born of commands, not born of shoulds, not born of judgments. So this is how we're practicing. We're cultivating the conditions conducive to renunciation. Renunciation is conducive to freedom. This is a moment-to-moment investigation, a moment-to-moment practice, a moment-to-moment cultivation of walking the pathways of freedom, of unbinding our hearts. Unbinding of our hearts. Part of that unbinding of our hearts is this ongoing alignment of ourselves, our understanding, our lives with the way things actually are. Part of that unbinding is putting down the argument with the, un, uh, with the unarguables. The greater that we heal that dissonance, the greater we cultivate the conditions of kindness, mindfulness, inquiry, investigation. This is actually the pathway of renunciation. I'd like to end with a poem by Marge Piercy. Learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open. Love with the doors banging on their hinges. The cupboard unlocked. The wind roaring and whimpering in the rooms. Rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds that thwack like rubber bands in an open palm. It hurts to love wide open. Stretching the muscles that feel as if they're made of wet plaster, then of blunt knives and of sharp knives. It hurts to thwart the reflexes of grab, of clutch, to love and let go again and again. It pesters to remember the lover who's not in the bed, to hold back what is owed to the work, the gutters that gutters like a candle in a cave. Without air, to love consciously, conscientiously, concretely, constructively. I can't do it, you say. It's killing me. But you thrive. You glow on the street like a neon raspberry. You float and sail, a helium balloon, bright bachelor's button, blue and bobbing through life. Just a moment, quietly together, and then what? 